Father God, you are truly great. It's such an honor to know you, to have your spirit working in our hearts and lives. Father, the same God who spoke in the universe came into existence, loves us. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells within us. Father of God, you have uh, taken care of our greatest problems and provided for our biggest needs, and we praise you for that. As we look at Psalm 139, Father God, just open our hearts and make these words live to our hearts and lives, how we would apply these great truths about who you are and their implications for how we should live with great confidence and joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And all God's people said amen. And you can be seated at this time. Well, it was the late great theologian R.C. Sproul, great Bible scholar, who said, I'd like to say of every Christian that we were all theologians, uh, no matter if you've been to seminary or not, uh, because everybody thinks about God on some level, who God is, what God is like, what he's up to in our lives, and his work in the world. And that's the stuff of theology. And, uh, you know, we get all of our theological truths from the Bible, God's self-revelation. He says, this is who I am, this is what I'm like, and this is what I'm doing. Now, theology, if it's going to have any value at all, has to impact how we live. It has to be important in our lives. It's, it's not no good to know something about God, uh, his love, his holiness, his strength, his goodness, if we don't incorporate it, right, into the way we think and the way we live. Psalm 139 is a great example of how theology, knowing God and what he's like, profoundly shapes our lives. David is Israel's first legitimate king, and he's called the sweet psalmist of the nation. He's uh, favorite singer of Israel that's noted in 2 Samuel 23 and verse 1. Uh, he's been meditating on the awesome attributes of God and it's become a, a game changer for him. And uh, we see really uh, of all Bible heroes, David included here, his sense of well-being is not determined uh, by his circumstances but by his theology. Uh, he's not focusing on his great troubles, but he's thinking more about his great God. And that makes all the difference. And so here in Psalm 139, he writes a song. Of course, the Psalms are the word of God. So the song is divinely inspired. Uh, and he's got three great attributes of God uh, on his mind. The three theological terms, I have them for you. This is what David's uh, thinking about. He's thinking about that God is omniscient, that he knows everything, that God is omnipresent, that he's everywhere at once, and God is omnipotent, he is all-powerful, and he's going to sing a song about these three attributes. Now, most people 
We'll take these truths for granted about God. I mean, if there's a creator God, you would imagine him to be these things, right? Uh, but they stop there, and they don't connect the dots um, and, and ask the question, what does this have to do with me? How do these strengths about God impact my life? How could they give me confidence and hope and joy and peace? Well, for David, that's exactly the facts that God knows all things and is present everywhere and he's all-powerful is a a reason to live with mind-blowing wonder, confidence, and joy because to know him and to know about him is to love him. So Psalm 139, you can read along, follow, it's going to be projected here. Uh, First verses 1 through 6, So Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is even on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to uh, attain. So verses 1 through 6, he's going to praise God for his omniscience. Uh, 7 through 12. Where can I go from your spirit Where could I flee from your presence? If I go up to heavens, uh, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. The song we just sang. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. The darkness is as light to you. So 7 through 12, note takers, we're going to praise God with David uh, for his omnipresence. 13 uh, through 18 here. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth is an idiom for uh, beyond uh, human eyes there. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. So verses 13 uh, through 18. Praise God for his omnipotence. 19 through 22. Now, it's kind of a, it seems like a little divergence here. <laughs> if only you would slay the wicked, oh God. <laughs> Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. 
I count them my enemies. And so verses 19 through 22, he's praising God for salvation and God's ultimate victory over evil. And then last two little reflection verses here. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way, grievous evil thing in me and lead me in the way of everlasting life. So he closes out with a sweet reflection, a prayer of surrender. God, I know what you're up to and I'm going to be fully cooperative. So let's dive in, verses 1 through 6, as David begins by praising God for his omniscience here. And so, yeah, right here at the opening verses, you know me inside and outside, God. You see me coming and going. So it's important to notice, first off, that this awareness that David has of God's knowing everything about us uh, and watching us always, does it bring him a dread? Does it bring some comfort? How is that possible? Well, David's heart has been cleansed, right? He's been put right by faith. That's the way the Old Testament uh, saints uh, were saved, the same as all of us trusting in God. He's already sung about the joy of having your sins forgiven in Psalm 32. How blessed, how happy is the one whose, whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. So since he's right with God and everything in his heart that God could possibly see has been redeemed or paid for, there's no fear of any condemnation when the searchlight of the Almighty comes sweeping through. Yeah, there's plenty to be aware of in our hearts and diligent and and perhaps concerned, but nothing to be fearful of God seeing something he's already paid for in full. And so he says, you've searched me and you know me completely. The word search there is to dig. And it's interesting, I kind of laughed in my study because uh, the origin of the word dig and slang uh, is to, uh, to, to understand. So when in the 60s he used to say, can you dig it? You know? uh, it was really this connection of searching and understand, can you feel it? Now, nowadays they say, do you feel me? It's the same kind of thing, and to which I always say no. I, I don't feel you. Um, so this, this is no shallow, superficial knowledge that God has of you and me. When the Bible speaks of God's dealing with humans, uh, he deals with our, quote, inmost being, verse 13, He gets into a place where soul and spirit divide, Hebrews chapter 4, past the muscle and bone to the joint and the marrow. It cuts through the bone into the marrow. That's where God gets down to where things matter. He sees clearly, quote, the secret places of our hearts. Romans chapter 2 and verse 16, so different from humans because all we've got to go on to know you is what you present on the outside. And unfortunately, most of who you are and how and what really matters is inward. And the only one who can see that is God. 
your life and who you are is below the surface, uh, where no human eyes can go, where no human mind can fathom. And uh, as we learned in 1 Samuel 16, 7, when uh, God had to uh, tell Samuel, hey, look, you're all about the outward, but I'm, I'm looking at the person who they really are on the inside. And he says, you know that person. And perhaps, God, you're the only one who knows who I really am. You've dug deep into me. You see right through me. Uh, you know me better than anyone else knows me. Now, just the other day, we were doing the I-5 thing and just driving forever on I-5 down to Los Angeles. And, you know, we're having a great conversation, me and Bart. And, and suddenly, I just started thinking about something sad, uh, you know, somebody who's struggling. You don't know them, somebody's struggling. And I just kind of started thinking about it. It wasn't a minute. And, and I didn't say anything, and I had sunglasses on. And she goes, so, what are you thinking? And, and I said, how do you do that? You know, she's going, you're sad, aren't you? And I'm like, what? How? Well, how do you know that? You know, she goes, honey, 38 years. It's almost been 40 years. Well, we don't even know how long we've been married. We really don't. We don't. I couldn't tell you right now. And we go back and forth in the car. Okay, was it 40? Is it 38? It's 37, right? What is it? 37 and a half. Anyway, I'm like, well, I know stuff about you, too, you know, and uh, which is kind of a lie, because uh, <laughs> women are a mystery to most men. And so really that, yes, I know a lot about my wife, and she knows a lot about me, but there's plenty that remains unknowable about both of us. Amen, husbands and wives. It just can be a big mystery. And so, yeah, um, but David is saying, God, you know me better than my spouse or my parents and better than I know myself. So Paul in the, is also uh, saying the same sort of thing. He says in Romans 7, I don't get me. I don't understand myself. He says, uh, I have great intentions and then I don't follow through. And the very thing I despise and go, ooh, I embrace it. He goes, who's going to save me from, I'm so wretched. I don't understand my own actions. And so, yeah, there was a prominent Greek thought in philosophy, and you've probably heard it. It said, man, know thyself. Well, this saying really brought people face to face with an impossibility <laughs> uh, because nobody knows himself, not one person. I, I was intrigued. Driving back here after I studied, I thought about the scripture. It's not in my notes, but Paul tells the Corinthians, uh, he says, stop judging one another on these superficial matters. You, you're so limited. You don't know their heart. You don't know the full story. He says, I don't even judge myself. He says, I don't know of anything that I'm doing that's sinful right now, but that doesn't let me off the hook because only God knows my heart. That's amazing that the Apostle Paul says, you know, it, it, I feel like everything's okay between me and God, but I, I couldn't tell you for sure because I can't really understand what Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9 says. The heart 
He says, the heart, who can understand it? It's all messed up and entangled and complicated. Oh my goodness, can anyone unravel broken psyche within us? No, Jeremiah, the answer is there's only one who can do that, our maker who knows us fully and loves us completely. That, that, that blows his mind is that you can know me and still love me. And in a sense, it's the, it's the truth even about a non-Christian. Because he loved them enough to die for them, warts and all. He loved us a lot when we were yet enemies. And so this is an amazing thing that he knows the depth of our depravity and uh, loves us all the same. So this knowing and being known is one of the greatest of all human longings to be understood and to be fully known. Uh, just thinking about people, especially in the world, uh, and for one example that comes to mind is horoscopes. Okay, people want other people to know who they are, what makes them tick, and why they are the way they are. And so it must be the constellations that were aligned at the time I was born. So I'm a Leo. So we tell people I'm confident, and that makes me comfortable being the center of attention, ambitious, loyal, fiercely protective of the nearest and dearest, uh, generous, luxury-loving, sunny, and big-hearted. Well, the only problem with this is that it's not true. And, and, and the stars have no power to determine human behavior. And to describe a Leo is pretty much to describe a good chunk of the population. Uh, you know, so everybody's like, yeah, that sounds like me. Well, yeah, it sounds like everybody. Who doesn't want to be the center of attention except some strange uh, introverts. And so. <laughs> Who I love. <laughs> Who God loves, who God created, and he knows all about all of your words and lack thereof of your words. Yeah, uh, you know all these personality uh, tests. We want to be known. We want to know who we are. We want to tell everybody, I'm an ENFP, you know, a Myers-Briggs, or uh, which love language, which one of the love languages are you? And I'm going to tell you mine, and I'll just tell you which ones are mine, all five of them. <laughs> How could you not? Why would you say I'm only taking two of them? I'm taking all five. <laughs> the more love, the better. I, IQ, what kind of smart are you? You know, we just want to know all of this and tell others we want to know and be known. And the Lord says, that's me. I'm the one who made you. I'm the one who knows you. I know everything about you down to the ever-changing number of hair follicles on your head. And if I know the things that are, are insignificant about you, how much more the things that really matter? He says, he never misunderstands you. He never's thrown off track or confused by you. He's got your name, your number, your social security number as well, and your address. He doesn't miss anything. And that's how he continues here in verse verses two and three. You know when I sit down, when I rise, my going out, my lying down, you're familiar with all of my ways. It's an interesting word, all, in the Greek. Well, actually, it's the Hebrew, isn't it? In the Hebrew, all means Oh, very good. You see, you're familiar with all of my ways. Not most of my ways, 99% of my ways. No, you, you're familiar with everything. So your gaze 
is watchful, your attention, you're interested in me, uh, in my literally down-sitting. So it means in my downtime. When, when, when things are casual and still and quiet, where, where, I, where God is least likely to be uh, present and looking at you, when you open the door of the refrigerator, you're not hungry, but you're just staring in there because, you know, that's what we do when we get bored. We just, that's what I do. I open the refrigerator and I just stand there and look in there. But he's saying, <laughs> look, he says, uh, God is interested in you and doesn't break his gaze off of you when you're playing Wordle or sitting down and reading a book or just taking a little nap. He's interested and he's there and he's watching, not in a creepy way, but in a wonderful way that that's the kind of love and obsessive interest he has in the one he created and fashioned together in their mother's womb and ordained all their days because he loves us. In our uprisings, it says in the Hebrew, and I have a little smiley face because he sees us in our uprisings. That could be good or bad. Uprising, you know, riot. Anyway, moving on. Uh, when I'm on the go, when you're playing pickleball, when you're embroiled in a heated conversation at work, when you're burning the candles at both ends and life is exploding all around you, he's got his loving eye upon you always. And more, uh, more profound than that, you perceive my thoughts from afar. <laughs> Before a word is on my tongue, you know what I'm going to say. I don't know what I'm going to say. But he says, I know what you're going to say. That's amazing. Even uh, there back at verse 2, it's comforting that, that the Holy Spirit, he understands even in Romans chapter 8, the groans, the sighings. When you sigh, he goes, got it. Who can do that? That's amazing. So here in those verses there, he's saying, God not only knows what you're going to say, but he knows why you're going to say it or not say it. Uh, I love this. He knows our thoughts. Luke chapter 7, we see Jesus doing that thing. He's eating in a courtyard with a Pharisee named Simon and a woman who Jesus must have touched and ministered to uh, crashes the party. You know the story, Luke 7 and began worshiping at Jesus' feet. And here I've got it. I sent it over Luke 7. Look at this. It's one of my favorite verses. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this woman at Jesus' feet, this sinful woman, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him. That's one of my favorite. He answered him, Simon, I want to talk to you about what you're thinking. Oh, my goodness. He answers you when you're thinking to yourself because why? He knows your thoughts. And from afar, meaning he doesn't need to be close to, to kind of get context. He's pretty busy right now in Ukraine and Russia. But he knows exactly what's going through your mind right now. He's 100% on focus with you right now. 
And in all the times you think, I'm just by myself, I'm doing nothing, he's a million miles away, he's busy, you know, with world leaders. No, 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 no. And then he goes on to say, uh, yeah, you hem me in. You put a hedge about me behind the before. But I, I just love when I learn something, you know, after so many years. It, it's not so much you, 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 hedge, you put a hedge about me to protect me from outside. He's hemming him in to protect him from leaving, from escaping, as he's about to talk about, fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Where could I go? Well, that's what is, is on his mind next. That God says, look, and he says, you've got your hand on me. You've hedged me around. You put up a wall so I can't escape. Your kindness because prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We sing it in a hymn. We've been singing that for what? 400, 500 years. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But David says, oh, you've got your hand on me. You've got me in a grip of grace by the most high God, and you've hedged me about. I'm not going anywhere. I can't even mess this up. Yes, you can shipwreck your faith if you really want to. We're not going to keep you from all of that joy. But there's no way if God knows you and you're written in the Lamb's book of life, not even you can undo that. You really can't. He's got, do you you remember the only Star Trek that matters is the one with William Shatner, uh, (laughs) which I've said before and why you didn't laugh there, but because you've (laughs) heard it so many times, but uh, they have something called a tractor beam. And so they'd lock on something they needed to drag somewhere. And once the USS Enterprise uh, locked on to something with the tractor beam, it was done. It was going to happen and God has got his tractor beam locked on you. His hand holds me. He's, you, got, you got your right hand, your strength, the power there uh, is going to keep me. Just love it uh, so much so. Uh, this is just a beautiful thing. And then he just says, such knowledge is too wonderful, wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. I love what Paul tells the Ephesians. He says, I'm praying for you guys, that you would understand the height, the length, the width, the depth, the breadth of God's love. And then he says this, which surpasses knowledge. Well, I'm praying for you, that we can do the best we can to grasp it, but you never will completely, because it's beyond us. And this is where I just see, you know, remember playing the pinball uh, the machine, and if you, if you shook it too much, it would tilt, and it would just shut down because it was just overwhelmed, whatever. And uh, I just see David just going, you know, this is knowledge that I can't attain, that you can know all about me, that you could be everywhere at once. This is just a, a wonderful thing, and keep me from escaping uh, yeah, he, he's apprehended by God. He, he's thinking, I, could, I should have been apprehended by God and tossed into an eternal dungeon, 
But now he apprehends me, he's rescuing me, and he's locked onto me to bring me to eternal paradise. And he loves me still and determined good things for me. That's amazing. So now he moves to uh, from omniscience to omnipresence here. So 7 through 12, where could I go from your spirit? Where could I flee from your presence? I'll go up to the heavens. There you are. If I make my bed in the depths, in the word there, Sheol. And King James has hell. That's incorrect. We, we, we think of hell. Hell is at the end of the millennial kingdom, the eternal lake of fire. Uh, he is just really saying that um, if I depart this life, you're in this life everywhere. And even if I depart this human life, in either place, I am going to find you. And since he's a believer, he knows that it's going to be well uh, with his soul. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, you see, even there your hands will not smack me down, not accuse me, not punish me. But it, it, though I'm trying to flee, there you are to help me. Let's talk about these so, uh, thoughts here. So since God is everywhere, David, uh, David has no need to fear because he can never be separated from God because God is an ever-present help in trouble. So wherever you are, God is always and forever. So he asked himself some rhetorical questions which I find amusing. Um, he says, you know, he's preaching the gospel to himself. He's saying, okay, David, God's got his hand on you. Even if you wanted to escape from his benevolent clutches uh, and do your own thing and live your own life, how do you get away from God? He knows all things. He's everywhere you are and everywhere you're not. He's got all the power and, and he's good. So really, you know, it's impossible to hide from him in whom we live and move and have our being, Acts 17 and verse 28. But silly humans that we are, um, James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves to God and resist the devil. But we're prone to do just the opposite. We, we resist our good God and we yield to the one who wants to destroy us. And so be that as it may, David is, is mocking the whole idea of running from God. Uh, and he's mocking it to himself. It's like, how would one go about escaping God? David is musing here. Jonah tried, uh, but he had a whale of a time doing so. <laughs> Finally, you're so difficult. God asked him to go 500 miles west to Nineveh, Iraq, modern day. And he purchased a ticket to go 2,500 miles oh, east. Sorry, that was east. I'm, I'm all mixed up here. Uh, yeah. God asked him to go east and he went way west. 2,500 miles to Tarshish, which is southern Spain. But God provided a way to get Jonah back on track, uh, both in the direction of his life and the condition of his heart. So the better question would have been, rather than where could I flee from your presence, would be why would I flee 
from your presence? And sadly, everyone in this room could answer that question because we all have. We all have and we all still do. We have bouts of it, that prone to wonder thing that we do. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11 is, is like all over the Bible where he says, look, um, I know the plans I have for you. Plans not to harm you. Even Jesus in John chapter 3 says, I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you. We just, silly humans with that guilt thing, we're always thinking the other boot's about to drop, you see. And so, yeah, so he, he so why would I flee? You know, that's crazy. Uh, but wherever, if you look at verse 10, he's figured it out. Wherever he would flee, God would already be there, ready to help him. And so he's preaching to himself. He lists some possibilities of potential uh, destinations where he might hide from the most high God. And he says, if I go up to heaven, if I make my bed in Sheol, right? And I love in the Hebrew, you see, if I make my bed in the depths, it says just in the Hebrew, behold you. (laughs) Just behold, like all caps, there you are. You. I just love it. You know, it's kind of like David is saying, if you plan on heading to flee God in some direction, he's already there. He's fast, you see. Uh, When my father became a Christian, I was 18, my Jewish dad is, I'm telling him, Dad, you're Jewish, you can't do this. You can't accept Jesus. It's against the rules. And then he started in with Jesus was Jewish and all of this stuff. I needed to get out of that house. Uh, and on weekends, I would. I would go with my buddies somewhere and we'd take a bus or, or I'd go and visit them. And I'll never forget one weekend saying, I've got to get away from this Jesus gospel thing. And I got on the bus and I got off the bus in the city and I hear a street preacher echoing, come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest says the Lord and I'm like I I remember thinking he's after me (laughs) he's after me and he is and that's David's point is why bother, why bother hiding, why bother playing games, why bother running you just can't escape him in this life or in the next. That's what he's saying. And so, yeah. Um, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, <clears throat> really nice there, verse 9, thinking poetically of the dawn, the first gleam of light. He's a poet and just a beautiful writer. And God just shows him, you know, if I take the wings of the dawn, meaning um, the, the light comes at dawn so fast and in seconds there are just streams of light that that just shoot up everywhere and light the entire earth and i i googled around and found out that the the speed of light is 186,000 miles a second that's really fast Uh, and he said if i sped away from you as fast as almost 200,000 miles a second, it wouldn't be fast enough. Charles Spurgeon said, 
Light flies with an inconceivable speed and it flashes and fills the entire earth in mere seconds. Light reaches us from distant galaxies, but should it be employed to fly from the Lord, its speed would utterly fail. <laughs> the idea is wherever I'm headed, you'll beat me there. And wherever I'm going, you're already there. So this is just an amazing thing. And so, yeah, distance doesn't separate from God and nor does darkness, verses 11 and 12. Surely the darkness will hide me, but even the darkness is not dark to you because it, you can have a total eclipse. There could be no light anywhere. And for God, it's like he's got infrared vision. He sees as if it was noontime, clear sun. There's no darkness. So he's saying, you know, sometimes uh, life gets dark and you fall into despondency or depression or some uh, sinful thing, or a season of darkness. And he goes, that is just not going to affect. He's the light of the world. And then you think back to the days when Israel was in the wilderness and, and the Lord himself was a flaming torch by night that led them through that barren wilderness in the dark, provided them warmth and all of this and so just beautiful thing and so omniscience is now going to give way to omnipotence as we move along and he's going to praise God for his power to create and sustain human life and so verses 13 and on for you created my inmost being you knit me together in my mother's womb and there it is fearfully and wonderfully made let's talk about these Verses, there's a couple more under the same heading to come. But so he's praising God for his omnipotence. And so he's saying, by your great power, God, you created me. And by that power, you sovereignly direct every aspect of my life. Like the song we sing, uh, I have a maker. He formed my heart before even time began. My life was in his hands. Just beautiful here. So David has no knowledge of embryology. He's never taken anatomy or physiology courses. He's never looked through the lens of a microscope. But he knows enough to be out of his mind with awe at the process of how a human being comes into existence. And the wow begins at conception, with God making our soul and planting us as one cell, a microscopic cell in our mother's womb. And that one cell would become 100 trillion cells. In less than nine months, a human being emerges body, soul, and spirit from an invisible one cell organism. Got a picture while I'm talking about this that is pretty amazing. 
He says, you weave me. It means crochet or to embroider into the blood vessels and muscles and sinew, as the word says there, uh, into life itself, knitting and designing us fearfully and wonderfully made, I'll say. But at five weeks, the heart starts beating, and uh, some say a lot earlier than that. Most of the other organs begin to develop at five weeks, followed by uh, the brain and the spinal cord at 10 weeks. Uh, the embryo is considered a fetus. At 12 weeks, most of the 78 organs are formed. 78 organs. Unbelievable, fearfully and wonderfully made. The blood vessels in your body, if they're stretched end to end, will circle the earth four times. There, you have 35 trillion blood cells, and the body makes 2.4 million of them a second. And they each have a lifespan of about 120 days, but no problem because every day you're making millions more. The human eye can distinguish 10 million shades of colors. The sense of smell to enjoy fragrances, taste buds, so we can taste cheesecake. It's important, people. And it's one of the, my love languages. Hands to work, feet to walk, dance lungs to breathe, the conscience to know that we're not an animal, a voice to speak and sing and praise the God who gives us life. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I thank you, God, for the awesome way you created me and all human beings and then planning good things for me. The sovereign power, all the days ordained for me were written in your book. What does that even mean? It means that he's been involved, sovereignly directing me and you, not, not disturbing free will, working together all things for our good. Look at this. You mean you want to talk about having God ordain your footsteps? Uh, Ephesians chapter 1. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. That would include before we were born. Uh, <laughs> to be holy and blameless in his sight. Already before there's an earth. He knows us. He's got his hand on us. In love. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praises of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us when? <laughs> before we were even in the womb and before there was an earth spinning in space. Yeah, I'll say fearfully and wonderfully made. All the days of my life have been ordained by you.
before one of them has come to pass. Now, I do have a comment here about God ordaining our footsteps. And David's life has had a lot of joy, a lot of honors, a lot of victories. But he's also suffered a lot of pain and losses and surprises and betrayals and crazy men chasing him down for eight years. But still he can say, wow, you've ordained my footsteps and and the ideas for good things. And see, he sees that God is working all things together and that there's nothing that uh, he encounters that God hasn't permitted for some kind of redemptive purpose. And so uh, he continues with this adoration. Verses 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. By the way, he's saying toward me that you think about me like this. That you've put all of this time and energy into creating who I am. And all of the many thoughts and concerns you have for me. And then he pictures himself on the seashore there, the Mediterranean. And he's thinking, how many grains of sand am I looking at? And how deep down are we talking about? Pretty deep. Well, there's countless. And he says, your thoughts about me, your concerns, the way you think about what I'm doing and my forgiveness and my mental health and my comfort and my maturity and my growth and my holiness and my uh, and me getting what you're trying to communicate in all the ways you're thinking about me in a day's time. I can't count them. This is an amazing thing. You're no accident. He's fully invested and fully obsessed with you in the most beautiful, healthy way possible. David's smitten by this, and he's just saying, this is just amazing. And then I, he, when he says, I, it's kind of awkward there, when I awake, I'm still with you. What, what is that in the context there? One writer loved what he said. He said, the thoughts about the greatness of God's love are like a dream. But unlike a dream, God's love is real. David is saying, I can get lost in wonder in it all. But every morning I awake to God who's with me, who was with me yesterday, watched over me through the night, and woke me up again to the reality that this isn't just a dream. I keep waking up and God is still with me. So moving on and winding down, Uh, David is going to close out this uh, amazing psalm with a surprising little turn. If only you would kill all the wicked, oh God. You see, away from me, you bloodthirsty men. Let's talk about this. And he's praising God now for for salvation and God's ultimate victory over evil. So up until now, David has painted this beautiful breathtakingly beautiful picture. This wonderful, benevolent God who knows everything. He's ever-present. He's all-powerful. He's ordaining our lives. Uh, A God who's created us, sustains us. Uh, He's for us and loves us. What an unspeakable honor to be created by God in his image for his purposes. But what's wrong with the picture? 
exactly. The problem of evil. It's like a big blot on a masterpiece. And it just comes to him, this beautiful picture, and then splat, evil in the world. And he wishes it to be removed forever. He wants the Garden of Eden to be restored, which it will be like that. Um, And so we see this flash of righteous indignation, Old Testament style, and we're going to need some clarification and balance about uh, some of his remarks here in light of Jesus' teaching and the New Testament ethos. Um, David's prayer, if only the bad guys were gone, he wants the troublemakers, the violent people, cruel, perverted, and vile and vulgar, the people who ruin life. They just ruin everything. Anything good, and they come near it. A fool in his folly. It's like uh, going near a bear robbed of her cubs to go near a fool in his folly, the Proverbs say. If only we could just get rid of them all, he says. Now, you know, it's interesting. The source of David's, we would call this righteous indignation. Um, He says, I'm against them, not because of the pain they're causing me, but because they're against you. And I'm offended. I love you so much that when they're insulting you and misusing your name, it riles me up inside. It hurts me. It angers me. They misuse your name and blaspheme and break your laws and stumble your people. And they try to eradicate your truth and your existence and teach little kids that you're not even there and all kinds of lies and perversions. He says, I fight against them. And he says, uh, yeah, well, okay, let's do some New Testament balancing of hating them with perfect hatred uh, because we know what the Lord says about our enemies. Well, first of all, I do want to say that, and as pastor in training, Jarrell, Um, rightfully said last week of any psalm that calls out for vengeance or uh, speaks about uh, uh, hating the bad guys is is really a messianic psalm. It's speaking prophetically and only really the Messiah can pray those words um, because, well, for one thing, we don't really know who the enemy is. Uh, most people thought uh, they could pray that about Saul of Tarsus because he was killing Christians and so we would pray with the perfect hatred of Saul. God, you need to kill this guy. He's killing our people. It turns out that Saul wasn't really the bad guy in the story. He's actually the hero of the New Testament, but we wouldn't know that. And Mary Magdalene, after she wrecked the 20th family because she was sexually immoral, people would say, I hate her with perfect hatred, as it says in the Hebrew. God, you just need to just take her out. It turns out that she's the first witness of the resurrection before the guys. Who would know that? So, so there's no possible way to, to pray against the enemy Well, we don't know who they really are. 
They're discouraged right now, for one thing. And then Jesus will come along with this, hey, I'm giving you a new commandment to love one another. Well, it's not really new because it's in Leviticus chapter 19. But it's new in scope and in breath. Now he says, you've heard it said before. I, I might have that. Did I send that Matthew 5 over? You've heard it said. I'll just read. Oh, good. <laughs> you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. There's a, a new commandment I give to you. <laughs> love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father because he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, guys, if you love those who love you, what reward is there in that? Don't even sinners do that. And if you greet only your own people and you're hospitable to people who are hospitable to you, what what are you doing more than an atheist? Don't even pagans do that. Be perfect, be complete, be mature is the word in the Greek. Therefore, as you're Heavenly Father is, and so yeah, we would hate the sin and and love the sinner. Not so easy to do. And maybe that's why he closes up and prays this prayer because he's it's not easy to have hate in your heart, and he, I think he knows that. And and he closes out with the last couple verses. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Because he's anxious. He's saying, kill them all. Kill those bad guys. And he's feeling anxious. Now, it's funny because he's closing out by asking God to do what he already knows God, God does. You search me, O God. You know me. Right? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any grievous, is the word, sinful, yes, offensive to you, God, and anything offensive is grievous and evil. And lead me in the way everlasting. So what he's saying here is I know what you're doing. I know that you see everything. And I know I'm not above knowing that I have secret sins and, and uh, I have issues and character qualities that need to be worked on and vices and problems. So all David is saying is, I'm, I'm with the program. I'm surrendered. I want to cooperate with you. So he's saying, go for it. That thing you do, God, that sanctifying sweep through me with a searchlight and going, this thing, now I want to hear it. You don't have to beat me into submission. You don't have to bring things around so that to get my attention, I'm, a, I'm listening to you right as soon as you wake me up in the morning, I hit my knees or I begin to pray and say, God, search my heart today. Oh, I've got a bad attitude. Am I being self-centered in my marriage? Am I being defensive or difficult to, to work with at, at my job? Am I letting things go here? Show me. Correct me. And lead me into eternal life with you. Let's pray together. Father God, what a beautiful, amazing psalm. 
just the love that you have for us, that the, your power, your greatness, it makes us feel secure, God, and we feel a, a great sense of your protection and your care and your love. Now, help us, God, to respond to all of these truths in a way that's worthy of you and shows our gratitude to a, a God so great and blessings and honor that are without human words to express. We want to just live for you, God. Help us to do that. Search us, oh God, and know our hearts and see if there be any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.